So today we'll be looking at the 19th Psalm. And this Psalm is really one of the most remarkable, outstanding Psalms of all the Psalms in the entire book. And you have to remember this, that the Psalms were written for music. We don't know how this may have sounded in the music of that time period, and we do have a hymn. We did have one in the, in the, the past that uh, covered part of it, but uh, the whole psalm is just really an inspirational and it's quite an eye-opener. I'll tell you what it really tells you. When you get to the second half of this psalm, you will see that David had an insight into spiritual things that, that most men in his day couldn't even remotely comprehend. And that's what we'll see about this as we proceed. Now what this psalm does, it um, is actually showing God's great physical creation. It's actually showing the two creations that he made. The physical creation and the spiritual creation. Now we're not talking here about what he's doing in man, for man specifically. We're talking about the, the laws that he set in motion and the miracles that he performed to create the physical creation. And then we're going to see he did this exactly the same thing in the spiritual. And if you'll notice, uh, the superscription there says uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. And those superscriptions were actually a part of the original inspired text. So they belong there. So this was one of David's psalms. Now he's beginning here to show what God created physically. And he said that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now I think we all recognize that uh, uh, you can't see the heavens as well in certain parts of the country as you can in others. And in addition to that, if you live in a big city and you have all the city lights around, you can't get out into the woods and, and really see the, the heavens like you can when you're in complete darkness. But I think probably the most uh, remarkable example of the heavens that I ever saw was one time down in Texas. It was absolutely pitch black, and I looked up in there, and there was the Milky Way, and I mean, it was the most fantastic thing I ever laid eyes on. It was just unbelievably clear and vast and huge, and the number of stars were just everywhere, and it was really awe-inspiring. And that's what it says here. They declare the glory of God. Now, we're not only looking at the stars at night, but the, the sun, of course, is... Uh, everything that exists on this earth is a result of the sun. Everything physically that exists is a result of the sun. Because the sun gives us light, and it gives the various processes, it gives the, um, the way and means by which the various processes of all the plant and animal life grow. We couldn't have any, any, any physical life on this earth without it, because all the plants that the animals live off, off of that is the herbivores live off which live off of which men does and then all the crops and everything we produce come from the sun so it's another glory of, of God it's declaring his glory and the firmament and this word by the way uh, probably should be understood to mean expanse the uh, the expanse shows his handiwork now you find the same thing back here in Genesis the first chapter with the physical creation because the physical creation, it uses the, the same terminology, although it uses the word firmament. And I'm reading, of course, from the New King James Version. And uh, if we will notice Genesis 1, verse number 6, we read, Then God said, Let there be a firmament. And then if you notice your marginal rendering, if it shows it, it says, 
let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So there was some up there. There was some kind of a condition that existed prior to there, where everything was uh, perhaps you could compare it to a thick fog or a dew, and then God divided it, and he and he, he broke this expanse up and, and made the made the heavens. That is a, a, the second the the um, the, uh, the portion of the heavens that contains the clouds and this type of thing, distinct from the actual earth itself, and the firmament or the expanse expanse shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Now we know, of course, that uh, we're not hearing language, but the word it's speech here uh, has certainly the meaning of instruction. Day after day we're hearing this instruction of, of what the heavens are declaring to us. And night unto night reveals knowledge. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever studied astronomy I was uh, I felt very privileged to to take a course in it one time and it was absolutely enlightening. It was one of the most interesting courses that I ever took, and it gave me an insight into the heavens and the heavenly bodies and the uh, the various uh, uh, cycles of uh, of the stars and this type of thing that you you you'd never get if you don't study it. But uh, there is a sort of a, con, a weird concept that started with uh, we don't know really probably Nimrod, but it was really picked up by Pythagoras, and then uh, refined on down through by these Greek uh, philosophers, and the idea was that uh, the heavens give off these these sounds, and uh, one of the things that uh, makes man in union with the heavens, if he can finally comprehend these sounds and, and hear them, is called the uh, uh, music of the spheres, and I remember it when I was attending the Protestant church of my choice when I was a young lad we used to sing that song you know this is my father's world and through his listening ears all nature sings and around him rings the music of the spheres see they think it gives off music it, it, it's not giving off music but it certainly is telling us something it's revealing a lot of things to us now you may recall the statement that was made in the past I, I think I should take a moment of time to explain this and that is, um, we were told that uh, God created all these uh, signs of the zodiac and these, uh, these, these things that the heathen worship. He created them for the heathen to worship. When I heard that, it just it, it sounded really, it did not ring true. And what it really was doing, it was accusing God of fostering and creating idolatry. Because that's exactly what the, all these heathen do. The signs of the zodiac. Where do all those crazy things come from? Uh, you can look at them, you know, and you look at this uh, constellation, and this is supposed to represent something. Now, you know, you have to have a great stretch of imagination to make that thing represent what they say it does. And uh, I didn't go into a private study on where all the signs of the zodiac came from, but we know that they're certainly heathen and they're pagan. And yet we were told that God put all those those uh, things up there for the heathen to worship. And what is, was quoted, of course, was Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. You might just turn to that for a moment, and I'll show you what it really is saying here. Here God is talking about the Israelites acting corruptly in verse number 16, making carved images and so forth. So Deuteronomy 4, verse 16, warned them about getting off into corruption. And then he adds in verse number 19, Deuteronomy 4, verse 19, Take heed, 
lest you, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven. And then notice, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Now, if you read that very carelessly, and you make some false assumptions, you could interpret that to mean, yes, God created those things up there. He gave all those heavenly signs and the host of heaven and the sun, the moon, and the stars for, uh, for a heritage uh, for those people to worship. But actually, I think the uh, one of the best translations that I found on it is the New International Version. And it says, do not be worshiping things. There's a little uh, section in, in between there that's not really relevant to the argument, so I left it out. But it says, do not be worshiping things. The Lord has appointed to all nations under heaven. Now, does it say they were appointed to worship? No. It doesn't say that at all. So I'll tell you, the best way to understand this, in my view, is to take the word right after the host of heaven, with starting with you, if you have that in the King James Version. And I've got that, a parenthesis, starting right there. So what you really have here is a little parenthetical expression that is showing what not to do. And then you come down to the word serve them, and right after the word sem, them, I have another parenthesis. So this little prayer and parenthetical expression is offset. So the part that is offset is, you feel driven to worship them and serve them. Now, if you understand that as a little parenthetical expression, then the text would read, by skipping over that, Take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the host of heaven which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. See, they're, they're given as a heritage, but they're not given for worship. And that's why he says up there in verse 16, don't act corruptly. So that's exactly what they did. Now, what did, what did men do? Well, all we have to do is look at uh, some of the earlier chapters there in the book of Romans and elsewhere, and we'll, we'll see what they did. Let's go over here, for example, to Romans, the first chapter. And this is exactly what they did. And this is they, that's what they were being warned not to do here. So as you read here, Paul says, um, beginning here in verse number 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and, four, and birds, and four-footed animals, and, and, uh, and creeping things. And uh, then it goes on to say, continues on to describe here, uh, the various uh, forms of conduct which they did. And then verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, of course, we know the heavenly bodies are not creatures as such, but they're a part of the creation. So what did they do? They worshipped the heavenly bodies. And I can, I can tell you, don't think it isn't uh, very, very uh, rampant today because you can open any newspaper and there's your astrology chart. And people will come up, even even you, even some people I know better, and they'll say, well, what sign, what's, what is your sign? 
Oh, I know that uh, John and Mary are going to get along well. They're both born, they're, and their marriage is going to work out. They're both born under the same sign. Nonsense. And it's all it is is paganism. So you see, this is what it says here. Back in uh, Psalm 19, uh, there they were given, they reveal knowledge. They reveal, they, you know, what does it say back in Genesis, the first chapter? He gave them for signs and for seasons. And it's very important. Uh, uh, there were um, various um, astronomical observatories that were set up, and this uh, this uh, uh, series of uh, huge stones that are still found in Stonehenge, England, the indications are that it was an, uh, a, an astronomical observatory, and they could actually figure out when the vernal equinoxes and the solstice and everything were going to occur, and then, then they could judge the seasons by it. So it's a, you know, if you didn't have that to look at, and you, and you, you go by the weather itself at times, and you, when you have weather changes and weather cycles changing, you know, you can't always tell when to do what. So they, 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 they had to rely on those signs, those heavenly signs. So back in Psalm 19, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I mean, where can you go on the face of the earth where you, you cannot find that these things testify to God's glory and power, even in all the heathen nations and the heathen world? They certainly do. And their voice is not heard. In other words, they don't have, they're not speaking, though uh, and their line has gone out through the earth. And that word line, actually, probably would be better to say their, their direction or their rule. In other words, they they set boundaries and they, they act as rules. For example, uh, we know that uh, the calendar, God's sacred calendar, is, a, is a, a solar lunar calendar. In other words, it involves both. Whereas the calendars that are used by the world today are all solar calendars. You have some... Uh, some people that uh, follow a lunar calendar, and boy, that's, that leads to catastrophe because over a period of time it changes the entire season from summer to winter, and they're reversed. So the only calendar that is, uh, is really reliable it has to be a solar, un uh, solar lunar calendar. And uh, you have a certain number of revolutions of the moon that occur within a, a, a time period, and then it correlates re reasonably well with the length of the year. Now, when we uh, did the article on the, on the Hebrew calendar, we saw very plainly from the historical records that in the 7th century B.C. there was some change that took occur, occurred that, it, that changed the length of the solar year. Up to that time, all the ancient history showed it was a 360-day year. Then all of a sudden in the 7th century A.D. it's 365 and a half and a quarter days a year. So as a result uh, this, this, of this, of this uh, whatever caused it, some upheaval of some kind occurred, whatever occurred, the calendar, the lunar calendar and the solar calendar have to be reconciled. There's no calendar on the face of the earth that's used today by man of any kind, whether solar or lunar, whether lunar or whether solar. That does not get off a of whack. So it has to be reconciled. This is why they have the intercalary years. Every, uh, every out of a 19-year cycle, every every seven years, out of that seven years, the 13th month is added. So when you see that, you can realize that just, just as it says here, their their direction, or in other words, their directing or their ruling, has gone out through the earth.
And uh, that's like I said, you know, a few minutes ago, I quoted it, I mean, I mentioned it, but I didn't uh, turn to it here, but let's notice Genesis 1, verse 14. Uh, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. That's what they are. They, they regulate these time periods. And uh, their words to the ends of the world. In other words, the language of the various things that they tell us and the signs, they've gone to the whole they've gone to the whole world. Now, you know, it's it's difficult for us to understand how in the world God keeps all those things sustained. They all stay there. We don't have to worry about it. And uh, they will stay there until um, he, he's, he's ready to uh, fully complete his plan. So that's why we read. In them he has set a tabernacle. In other words, he set it. He established it. He has set a tabernacle for the sun. In other words, it's a dwelling place. The sun stays in one location. And uh, there were uh, pe people who seemed to think that this idea that the... Uh, sun revolved around the, the earth was uh, the only thought that was believed. And yet they've, they've found solar systems, uh, modern day solar systems the Greeks had. They knew that the sun was stationary and that the earth revolved around the sun. That sun sits there and it doesn't go anywhere. Now, while it may be true that the entire universe is in motion somehow, we don't know how many universes there are and how much goes on, that's just relative. The fact is that the Earth, the Sun is in this one stationary position and the Earth revolves around it. The planets revolve around it. So he's set it there as a dwelling place. It stays there by a law that, by a laws that he's set in motion. And Jesus Christ is the creator. We know that. He sustains, as it says in the book of Hebrews, he sustains the world by the, by the word of his power. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. So he set those things there which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. In other words, he's dressed in his very, like a bridegroom is dressed in his very finest. What happens when you wake up in the morning and here comes this beautiful sun? Well, you don't need to like to, to be like the fishermen on the fishing party, you know, where they're all in bed and this guy jumps up and he says, Listen, I just heard the crack of dawn. Well, it doesn't come out quite that fast, but uh, it's, it's quite a, quite an eye opener when you wake up in the morning. And you, you know, you've got you've gotten a decent night of sleep, you know, and you've gone to bed like you should have, and uh, you can wake up uh, uh, cheery and bright and ready to go. What's more encouraging and enlightening than that sun? There are some people, however, who uh, who are night owls, and uh, like it says in the book of Proverbs, if you uh, say anything to them early in the morning, they count it as a curse. So. <laughs> But uh, actually, it means here that, that uh, it, it, it gives us tremendous uh, boost to the day and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. In other words, it's manifesting its great power. And that's exactly what the sun does. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit is to the other end. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. So what he's really describing here is this great power and magnitude of God's physical creation by the heavenly bodies, and it's all relative, of course, to the earth. Now we're going to make a shift into the spiritual creation. All of a sudden he shifts now. 
And now he's talking about, see, he said, he's, what he's really saying here is, look what God did. He created this fantastical, fantastic physical creation for us, but look what he's done spiritually. It's a law, the heavenly bodies and everything that God has organized is a law that's been set in motion, and it can't be changed. We don't have to worry about it. And we're adequately taken care of. Now, while astronomers might say that there's a wobble here and there in the moon, or there's a wobble here and there in, uh, in various planets and things, that really has no overall effect at all on how what God has done in sustaining us on this earth. But now look what he's done. He's made a spiritual creation, and this is what David is telling us here. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you think of a single man-made law that's perfect? I can tell you, any man-made law that men make, there's going to be some lawyer that will find a loophole. But I can tell you this, there will be no lawyers who will find any loopholes around God's law. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Now, God's will is in accordance with what is right. In other words, God doesn't just arbitrarily decide that he's going to do such and such because he says so. He, he does it because it's right. His very character demands perfection and rightness. So his will is in accordance with what is right. Why? Because he's perfect. He's not like men. He's perfect. So he's made a perfect law. And it's an absolute accordance with his will because it's a reflection of his character. Now what we have here, we have what we what uh, is termed the twelve praises. Alone is what we have here. We have law, we have testimony, we have statutes, we have commandments, we have the fear of the Lord, and we have judgment. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six of these things. Now, in each one of these things, we're going to find a description here of how um, how they, each one of these should be appreciated. What do we read here about the law of God? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now, can you think of a single man-made law that converts the soul? Is there any law of man that can bring about a spiritual change in the depths and heart of a man? None whatsoever. So it converts the soul. And uh, let's notice something here in uh, what we read about this law of God. This is this is this is really, uh, I think, an outstanding uh, reference uh, to uh, to apply to this. And this is Psalm 119 and verse 96. And in this uh, particular uh, statement, we read Psalm 119:96. I have seen the consummation of all perfection. That is what David is saying here. He's looked at everything physically, or whoever wrote this particular psalm here. It may not have been David that wrote it, uh, because um, it's a what they call an acrostic psalm, and it's uh, it's it, every single one of these paragraphs starts with a different Hebrew letter, and so that starts the psalm. That starts that particular section, and uh, this particular section here is in what is called the lamed. That is the L part. So the particular stanzas here started out with the letter L, and this is really used as a method of, of memorization. But anyway, 
what he's saying here, he's, he's, seen it. he's seen the fullness of all perfection. But your commandment is exceeding broad. Exceedingly broad. In other words, it can't be limited. So this is exactly how, uh, how he's understanding this. Now what he's doing is he's understanding this far broader than just in the physical sense. Now let's notice here, uh, here's a good clue to, what, to the insight that David had. And let's go to Romans, the seventh chapter. And in Romans, the seventh chapter, beginning here in verse number 12, Paul makes, Paul makes this statement. He said, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. It's holy. Now, is there any law of man that's holy? How many laws of men are just and good? Well, some are. Some aren't. Depends on the powers that be. It depends on the, the uh, vested interests who are, uh, who are pulling the, the purse strings on the politicians. It depends on the, uh, the uh, particular industry that's dominating. So uh, you, this, this can't be referring to any man-made law. But the law of God is holy and, and the commandment is holy and just and good. And then as he adds here in verse 14, we know the law is spiritual. So when Paul, when David here is talking about God's perfect law converting the soul, he's talking about something far broader than just the physical law as it was understood in the Old Testament period. So we have an insight here to, uh, to his, um, his understanding that normally you wouldn't find uh, during the Old Testament period. Now we have the word testimony there. Let's notice the word testimony here from the book of Exodus. We can go to uh, Exodus chapter 31, I believe it is, and uh, verse number 18. We read here regarding the testimony in uh, Psalm 19. We read, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Now, what do we mean by the word sure? In other words, it's absolutely firm. It's solid. It's faithful. It isn't going to vary. Now, how many man-made laws do we have to change constantly? How many times do you, do you, have you observed a law to find out now this law has been superseded by another and it's been changed and this doesn't apply anymore and so on and so forth? You ever try to deal with uh, building permits and uh, building a home and property and have the inspectors come out year after year and it's changed every single year? It's changed, changed, changed here, changed there. You don't have that instability with, with God's commandments and his testimonies. So we read here, the testimony of the Lord is sure that it's faithful, it's firm, and it makes wise the simple. Now let's notice uh, Exodus thirty-one eighteen. And when he had made an end of speaking with him in Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tables of the testimony, two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Ten Commandments. So you see, it's, it makes wise the simple. Now, it's interesting, this word simple, uh, actually a better translation for it would be um, naive. People who are naive. They don't, have any, they don't have any insight. But this commandment makes them wise. Remember what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.15? He said, you have known the commandment that is, that is able to make you wise unto salvation. 
Now let's notice Proverbs 14 and uh, verse number 15. Proverbs 14, verse number 15. And uh, I think this the, 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 the couple of texts here will illustrate what I'm talking about. Proverbs 14 and verse number 15. Here's a good sample of what we're talking about. It says, it makes wise the simple. Well, what do we read here? The simple believes every word. Have you known people like that? Whatever you tell them, they believe. They're gullible. They're naive. They don't realize, you know, that uh, a lot of the times what they're being told, regardless of who it, who it is from, may not be that reliable. Why do you think the Bible says, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good? So that's why it says here, this, this testimony of the Lord is intended to do that. And remember what we read in Ephesians 4, verse 14. Where to grow up as to mature men, as it says, that we'd be what? Not carried about with every wind of doctrine. So who are the gullible and naive? I'll tell you who they are. They're the last person that today, they, they believe the last person that comes and talks to them. They don't weigh things. So here's testimony. The testimony, the commandments of God are to give you the capability of being wise so you can see through those things. And you have a standard to judge by, to go by. And if you don't have this standard, what do you have to, to rest on? That's why it's so important. The statutes of the Lord are right. Now remember, we had statutes and judgments. Statutes were additional laws, you know, that had to do with uh, maybe gendering your stock of different kinds and planting seed together and, and uh, mixing uh, materials and this type of thing. So you'd have the best benefit in the, in the physical realm. And uh, then down here later on we find the word judgments, and those are decisions rendered on those statutes, or probably the commandments and laws just as well. But what do we read here? The statutes of the Lord are right. Now what do we mean by the word right? It means upright or righteous. They're upright. How many statutes of men are upright? I can tell you one thing about the statutes of men, the laws of men, almost invariably. What group benefits from it, the other group suffers. Somebody has to, is suffering the expense of it, and somebody's getting the benefit of it. It just goes that way constantly, doesn't it? Not God's law. I mean, that, that is intended for everyone. There isn't any respecter of persons, and no one's going to benefit from it. It's for the benefit of everyone. So the statutes of the Lord are righteous. They're upright, rejoicing the heart. So what do we see here? We see that the law of God is perfect. We see that the testimony of the Lord is sure. We find the statutes of the Lord are right. That's the comparison made all the way through here. And then what do they lead to? Rejoicing the heart. I can remember years ago when uh, they would pass these um, uh, various, I forget the terminology they use now, it's been so long now since I've paid any attention to it. I guess I should because it hits me in the pocketbook. But uh, they passed these uh, measures, you know, to increase the taxes, school taxes and some other thing like that, so they can keep the school open or they can keep the teachers employed or they can keep the kids in school 
So here, here's a certain class of people that benefit, and they, they, get the, they get the advantage, and they get the pay raise, and who pays for it? But a lot of times when these man-made laws are made, they're, they're, they're to benefit a certain class, but they're not for the benefit of all. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's pure. It's not, it's not tainted with anything. And uh, it's not sullied, or uh, it's not uh, issued from an from a ulterior motive uh, for, for, for the benefit of somebody under, under a guise or under a ruse that uh, it's for the benefit of all, when in reality it isn't. How many times have laws been passed in this nation and in this world where it's nothing more than a ruse? And I can tell you, all you got to do is get up there on the TV and start to sound bites and, uh, and say it enough times, and the gullible public will believe it. Notice Proverbs chapter 6 here, in verse number 23. What is a commandment of God? It's rather interesting here, because the word pure here, the root of it means bright and shining. It's bright. In other words, it's not, it's not sullied or ruined or uh, tainted in any way. So as we read here in Proverbs 6, verse 23, the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. That's exactly what it is. What does it do? It enlightens the eyes. I should say that actually the word enlightening is the word here that means um, brightness. In other words, it, it grants brightness. In other words, it illuminates us. Now, what happens if you try to walk around in the dark? Especially if you just had a light on and then you turn the light off and then you start to walk around in the dark. What happens to you? You can't see a thing, can you? Well, what does God's law intend to do? It's that light. It's that lamp to help you see. And uh, it, it, gives, it gives enlightenment. It gives insight. and It opens one's eyes to see what's going on. And then, uh, so what do we have here? We have the law is perfect. The testimony is sure. The statutes are right. The commandment is pure. Now we have the next one, fear. Now what does it say about the fear of the Lord here? It's clean. It's clean here. The word fear meaning reverence. In other words, it's wholesome. It's a wholesome reverence. Now, how many times have we had uh, fear, the wrong kind of fear toward men or toward an organization or toward the powers that be, and it's not wholesome? It causes us to do things that are really contrary to God's will. So that's why it's important that we recognize this, this reverence and this respect for God is wholesome. Psalm 51, verse 10. Here's a statement that David said here, and it's, it's uh, I think, very well put. Psalm 51, in verse number 10. David says here, Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. A clean heart, a pure heart. So what he wants us to see, what he wants us to do, is to, have a, to, to be clean, to have a clean heart. In other words, no ulterior motives and nothing that's really harmful or bad in our lives and in our hearts and minds. And what is this... Uh, what does this fear of the Lord do? It endures forever. It's enduring. Psalm 111, verse number 78. 
In other words, it'll never that that will never change that that uh, um, requirement. Do I want to use that term? Not necessarily, but uh, let's say the uh, that uh, that reality will always exist. That there should be a, a proper reverence and respect for God. And as we read in Psalm 111, verse number 78, uh, that is verses 7 and 8, here's what it says about uh, this, uh, this, this, this enduring. We're talking about what makes this, this reverence continue. We read here, The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. So the same thing that is behind the the uh, the reverence that we should have for God will exist forever. Not going to change. The idea that that uh, God came along and did away with His law—what nonsense! And that's all because people do not understand the difference between the sacrificial law and the sacrificial system, as opposed to the commandments and laws of God, which were given prior to long before there were any sacrifices. They're utterly confused on those issues, and so that's what they, that's why they think the law, you, you often hear the expression, the law of God is done away. It isn't any such thing. The sacrificial system was because Christ was sacrificed in, in place of the, of, the sac, of the sacrifices, but not the law of God. So it endures forever. And then the judgments of the Lord are true. That is their truth, their absolute truth. The renderings and the decisions that were made, they're true and they're righteous. They're based on God's law and God's commandments. That's what makes them righteous. And they're all, all together. In other words, there's, there's nothing where you find one out of kilt or one out of whack or one that doesn't apply. They're all that way together. So what do we have here? Well, we have the law is perfect. The testimony is sure. The statutes are right. The commandment is pure. The fear is clean. And the judgments are true and righteous. Now that's the, the 12 praises that you find here of God's law and God's commandments. So what is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual perfection. When God created his, his spiritual law, it was spiritual perfection. And it is nothing more than a representative of God's perfection. Nothing less than that. Now what does it say about these these commandments and these all of these things we've read about. More to be desired are they than gold. Now people today, you know, what would they what would they seek after? You gave you give most most people a choice, and I mean they'd do anything to gain gold. It'd be interesting. I, I read a, read a, the facts one time, but I've, I've actually forgotten the number now. The number of men who died froze to death and perished in that big gold rush up in the Yukon back in the late 1800s. I mean, they they went after that gold, you know, and I mean, it, 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 how many of them actually gave up their lives in order to get up there and get it? Well, I can tell you, the Bible says that's not what is important. Of course, it is important that we have sufficient to get by with and to, so we can be comfortable, and that's what God... Uh, that's what God says, but you have to realize all those things are relative, because uh, you take some person that uh, lives in a, in Africa or India or some place like that, uh, when they come over and see one of our homes, they think we're millionaires. 
Well, we don't think we're millionaires at all. We've been we've had the tremendous blessing of the benefits of God because of Abraham's promises. But uh, all of that is really relative. But uh, you know, Paul said, if you haven't eaten, eat drink, and shelter, then be satisfied. The trouble is, the the the, the whole advertising media is, is zeroes in on getting rich, getting wealthy, successful, buy this, buy that, have this, have that. And people are pummeled with that day and night, 24 hours a day. And it's, it's like a, one of the, the, the factions of society that they uh, prey on the most are children. And how many times have your children come, come to you after seeing some kind of a TV program? Daddy, Mom, I want this, I want that. And many parents will go ahead and give it to them. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. That is really refined gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Psalm 119, verse 103. Notice uh, the statement here. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. How sweet they are. So that's why he says there. They're, they're like gold. So anyway, it is the sweet. Now, let's go to verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there's a great reward. You know, I think of the people that I knew in times past who, um, who, who in times past who have just uh, thrown the towel in spiritually, so to speak, and uh, divorced their wives and went out and committed adultery and this type of thing. And, and the wives... That, broke up with their husbands and committed adultery and those things have happened and I mean they're they're heart rendering. But I can tell you that all all it is a result of not paying attention to God's law. And just keep this in mind, it says there very plainly in the book of Proverbs, he that commits adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He doesn't know what he's getting into, what he's doing. Well if he were warned by God's law and God's commandments, he would avoid those things. Because in the keeping of them, that's where the reward is. You don't have to suffer the consequences and the penalties that people have to suffer because they, they violate God's commandments and God's law. So now we see that we have this perfect physical creation that God made and we have this perfect spiritual creation, this law that God made. Now we want to equate it to ourselves. And what does David say here now? Who can understand his errors? In other words, who can perceive them? Well, remember what we read. God's commandments are exceeding broad. Now, I want you to, I'm going to read a little section here from Barnes Notes. This was so good, I couldn't pass it up because it really applies in this text here. Hence, the importance of preaching the law, I'm, I'm beginning to read here, that sinners may be brought to conviction of sin. Hence, the importance of presenting it constantly before the mind of even the believer that he may keep it, that he may be kept from pride and may walk humbly before God. For who is it that can understand his own errors? Who can number up the sins of a life? Who can make an estimate of the number of impure and unholy thoughts which in the course of many years have flitted through or found a lodgment in the mind? Who can number up the words which have been spoken and should not have been spoken? Who can recall the forgotten sins and follies of a life of the sins of childhood, of youth and of riper years. There is but one being in the universe that can do this. To him all is known. 
Nothing has escaped his observation. Nothing has faded from his memory. Nothing can prevent him can prevent his making a full disclosure of this if he should choose to do so. It is in his power at any moment to overwhelm the soul with a recollection of all this guilt. It is in his power to cover us with confusion and shame at the revelation of the judgment day. Our only hope and our only security is that he will not do this in his mercy, and that he may not do it, we should not without delay seek his mercy and pray for our sins to be blotted out so they will not be disclosed to us and... and, uh, to assemble worlds when we appear before him. Very good statement, isn't it? Pretty well summarizes what is he saying here. Who can who can perceive his errors? Who can really grasp them? So you see, I'll tell you what David is really pointing out here. He's, he's showing how broad the spiritual application of this law is. It isn't just a matter of, of violating it physically. It's, in, it's what's in the mind and in the heart. Cleanse me from secret faults. That is, hidden faults. Things that he didn't realize he was guilty of. Cleanse me from those things. How many faults do we have that we fail to recognize? Sad part about it is most other people can see them, but we have a very difficult time seeing our own, don't we? So who can cleanse me from secret faults? Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. And you know the root word of this word presumptuous here is proud or prideful. So what he's saying here is keep me back from sins that spring from pride. This vanity of self-importance. This vanity of putting other people down. This vanity of knowing all the answers. This vanity of always being right. Keep me from this kind of thing, he says. Let them, do not let them have dominion over me. That is, do not let them reign over me. How many people are virtually reigned? by this, 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 this pride they have in their natures, controlled by this pride they have. And when you deal with people like that, I can tell you it's not pleasant. That's what the Bible says. This is what David is saying here, that he wanted to be kept back from those kind of things. So um, sin does reign over us, as we read in Romans 6, verse 17. And Jesus said in John 8, verse number 32, The truth shall make you free. He came to give us the truth and to free us from these, from, the, from this dominion. He said, "Let them not have dominion, or let them not reign over me, that I should be. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression." Doesn't mean he's not going to be in, uh, innocent of, of sins and faults and shortcomings, but great translation, because when one, what was the sin of Satan? His heart was lifted up, wasn't it? Now, if you stop and consider that was the cause of Satan and the Satan, the influence that Satan has had on this world ever since, what, is it, what did it do to the world? And how many people have pride within them? And that pride just dominates everything they do. They can never admit they're wrong in anything. They're always right. Everyone else is at fault. That's why he says, deliver him from that. Because if that's the frame of mind he was in and he would stay that way, it would be a great sin. Great translation. And then he uh, summarizes it up here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In other words, what he wanted, he wanted to be sure that uh, that he, he was sincere and that he was honest before God and that this honesty and this sincerity would be recognized by God 
and would be appreciated. Acts chapter 1, verse number 24. You see, they all prayed and said, remember this? Yea, O you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all. God knows every man's heart, and he knows what's he knows what's in there, and he knows what the motives are. So he's saying, what he's really saying here is, let my heart be in, in union with, with uh, your desires and your wishes. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. This we know, that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. So what he's saying here is those who really are converted and hearts are right, they'll be assured before God. For if our heart condemn us, condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. He knows what our motives are. So let these things be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Where was he going to get the power and the strength to live up to it and to get the help he needs? You remember when David repented, you know, he said, Oh, please, restore me a clean heart. Clean me up. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So he had an understanding that uh, very few people, I think, really comprehend. So that's why we read, Oh, Lord, my strength. That is my rock and the one that strengthens me and my Redeemer, the one that bought me back. So you can see... As I started to say when I started this psalm, what a remarkable psalm it is. It's one of the outstanding psalms of the whole Bible. And it's well worth meditating on and reading quite often.